The showdown between Governor Mike Parson and State Auditor Nicole Galloway is one of the few governor's races this year that's actually competitive. And Galloway believes she's the one to bring the governor's office back into the Democratic fold. Galloway joins us next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to break down the big issues within her campaign and how she's going to prevail in the competitive contest. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me via Zoom is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio's Statehouse reporter, Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us also via Zoom, the Democratic nominee for Missouri governor and Missouri state auditor, our special guest today is Nicole Galloway. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This is continuing our unofficial series uh, talking to all the statewide aspirants for office. And We have one of the major ones. This governor's race is probably one of the few in the entire country that's considered competitive, along with Montana and North Carolina. So it's getting a lot of attention. There's a lot of money being thrown around and a lot of sharp elbows. But before we talk about the campaign uh, and before we talk about big issues, I want to ask you very simply, I guess this is the hardest question I'm going to ask you today. Why are you running for governor? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. It's great to be on again. And Look, when I launched this campaign for governor more than a year ago, I never could have imagined where we would be today, the health crisis and the economic crisis that we're facing. But I knew then that Missouri's families needed a change, and I am even more certain of it now. The most important thing the next governor will have to do is contain the spread of the virus and rebuild Missouri's economy. The question is, will we rebuild in a way that helps working folks get back on their feet, or will we continue to ignore science distract, rebuild only for well-connected special interests. And I'm running for governor to put Jefferson City back on the side of working families and to act with urgency to protect our fellow Missourians. You know, as state auditor, I have seen that the system is broken, that it's not working. Uh, It's not working for so many folks. Um, And I've identified over $350 million in government waste, have held public officials accountable from both parties for the actions that they have made on behalf of citizens. And I want to fix the system. Governor Parson has been in Jefferson City for almost two decades. He's been governor for two years, lieutenant governor before that, and the legislature before that. If he had solutions to Missouri's most urgent problems, we would have seen them already. He has had his chance to lead us through this, and he just doesn't have a plan or the leadership uh, to move Missouri forward. I I did cover your last race for auditor, which you often talk about as a a signal that you have a chance to win because you won in a Republican year. I guess I could also say that you ran against a very weak opponent with huge negatives and you only won by five and a half percentage points. And that could be a red flag about running in a more competitive race against Governor Parson. What would you say to that observation? 
You know, we, uh, I won uh, in 2018 uh, a re-election for auditor for my second term and won in places that Democrats didn't win a lot uh, in recent elections and outperformed the top of the ticket by 12 points. And I did that by going everywhere in the state, sharing my message, letting folks know that I'm standing on their side in government, holding Democrats and Republicans accountable. You know, my record is one of independence and standing up to the establishment doing what's right. So when I, I launched this campaign, as I said a year ago, um, of course, couldn't have imagined what we would be facing um, with just 35 or I guess less than 35 days to go in this election. But there was a path to victory then. And it's clear now. I mean, we've erased Governor Parsons lead in the polls. His approval rating has dropped by about 22 points over the last several months. The trend line is moving in the right direction for my campaign. Second, you know, the, the presidential race is not shaping up to be as wide of a margin for Trump uh, as it was in 2016 in Missouri. Uh, the Trump-Biden race is much, much closer this time around. Um, and so that also helps widen the path to victory. And, you know, I, I think third or the other point that I would make is that on the issue environment, particularly on healthcare um, and fighting COVID, taking action to fight COVID. These two issues that are just paramount to uh, Missouri families right now. Um, you know, Democrats um, are, are favored on those issues. We're in the worst public health crisis in a century, and the future of healthcare uh, is on the ballot here in Missouri and nationally. And I, I think Governor Parson has failed the test of leadership on both of these issues, and voters are clearly signaling they're ready for a change. So you lead into a topic that is very important in this election uh, for many reasons, COVID-19. One of the ideas that you have come out with uh, for Missouri and protecting Missourians against the virus is calling for a statewide mask mandate. Um, there are other states that have done this, but how would you enforce a mask mandate? Um, right now, Governor Parson's policy has been largely on localities um, and having local health departments enforce some of the restrictions that he did put in place. Um, and would you have any trouble getting people to comply with the mask mandate, given that, you know, we are hearing from some people that this is a political stance and not something that um, is totally backed by science? You know, masks are a science-backed, data-driven uh, way that has been proven to contain the spread of the virus, right? Um, and we have seen example after example, and Republicans and Democratic leaders throughout the country, uh, governors that are Republican in our country, have uh, issued statewide mask rules because they're listening to science and data, and they know that masks work. And look, I want to get back to normal, right? I think we all do. We want our economy open again. We want our schools fully open again. We want to get back to a more normal state. In the midst of a pandemic, you have to do something uh, to make that happen. You can't just say it and hope that it occurs. And the current course we're on is not working. Um, we have seen in places that in Missouri that do have mass uh, rules that their volume of cases slowly starts to decrease. Um, but they're not decreasing fast enough because the surrounding areas don't necessarily have a mass mandate, and this virus does not respect county lines. You know, the uh, COVID was supposed to spare the rural parts of our state. 
but it hasn't. You know, now we see in Macon and Marshall and in rural areas uh, where schools are shutting down again because of community spread. We see hospitalizations going up in Jefferson County and in Springfield uh, and the collar counties around St. Louis because COVID continues to spread at such high rates. Even the White House Coronavirus Task Force is begging the, the governor to take action on mass. And so I would work with uh, local health departments on uh, enforcing a statewide mask rule, very similar to how Governor Parson did when he shut down the state earlier this year. Um, so absolutely that can be done. And you know, I, I don't think this is a, a test of will or you know, a test of politics. This is a test of leadership you know, doing and demonstrating the right thing. Governor Parson has very much a, a do as I say, not as I do approach. When he's in the governor's office during the week, he tells people to wear a mask. Then he goes to campaign rallies on the weekends and tells people they don't have to wear a dang mask if they don't want to, even undermining the local government officials that are making these very difficult choices. So you said that you would, um utilize local health departments to en enforce these policies, would you consider, you know, some type of punishment for people who, if there was a mask mandate in place, would there be a punishment for not doing so? Or how would that work? You know, it is, it's, as I said, it's very similar to how Governor Parson worked with local entities during the shutdown. Um, and, you know, of course, there, there, you know, there's rules and there's consequences. And again, this is not a test of law. And I understand, you know, folks are frustrated <laughs> with COVID. They want this to be over. I understand that frustration. People want to get back just they want their lives back again. Um, and I think, again, clearly demonstrating and showing and communicating that masks are a ticket to freedom is important, um, that it is a science-backed, data-driven approach to containing the spread of the virus. So we don't have to shut down again. To be clear, I do not want to get to a place where we're shutting down businesses, um, where you know schools are shutting down fully again across the state. We shouldn't have to take away people's livelihoods in order to contain the spread of the virus. We have seen examples in other states where their positivity rates are 4%. 3%, right? We have sometimes triple that here in our state. The path we are on is not sustainable. As you probably heard in my previous question, and maybe even right now, I've got kiddos at home. There are a lot of parents who are doing virtual schooling, and it's been a struggle. I can personally attest to that. I am I am teaching two pre-Kers, um, well, assisting, helping them do their homework. They, they do still have teachers. But this has been a struggle. Um, do you think it's time to encourage schools to resume in-person learning? And what would be your benchmarks for that? Yeah, I mean, and, and Jacqueline, let me tell you, I feel that too. My kids go to school up the street from my house, the public school up the street from my house. And their school has been shut down since, I guess it was April. Um, and they're learning online just like yours are too. And, you know, it is, it is frustrating. I mean, I am very eager for my kids to get back to in-person learning because I know how vital it is for them. It's also vital for working parents so they can get back to work fully. I think people want their, their schools open, but they want that to be safe. And let's take a step back and remember what happened here. 
you know, schools closed down this spring uh, by their own decision making, their own accord, without guidance from the governor or his administration. And then after all the schools in the state closed down, he announced the schools were closed, then he shut them all down after they all closed on their own, and really did nothing over the next five months to ensure that they can open fully safely. Because as the virus was spreading in July and August throughout uh, the communities and counties throughout our state, the positivity rates would dictate Tate, um, if schools would be able to open again. And so, you know, instead he went on the radio in July and said it didn't matter how bad COVID was in our state, that kids are going to get COVID when they go back to school and they'll just go home and get over it. And so in his mind, you know, we as parents have to get over his failure to lead and just figure it out. You know, as governor, I would be much more engaged. I laid out a data-driven plan that gives uh, school districts guidance on learning models based on positivity rates in the community uh, based on a rolling 14-day average. Um, the state of Minnesota is using a data approach uh, similar to this one, and it sets expectations for parents. Um, but, you know, I, I, as I said, I would also be more engaged, uh, as we discussed in the previous conversation, would be more engaged on containing the spread of the virus to begin with, because I do want schools to open fully again, and I want them to be able to do it safely. Um, if you are elected, uh, we're talking about getting very close to a vaccine. And if you were elected, it would likely be in the time that, that you are governor. So how would you make sure that the institutions are in place to be able to roll that out when it is widely available? I, that's a fantastic question. I think that's something, it's never too early to start planning for that. Um, you know, I think that we should utilize uh, existing resources within the community that are trusted, such as community health centers, community clinics, uh, existing uh, facilities to distribute the vaccination and the vaccine, um, because uh, folks will trust, I, I think, have a, a trusting relationship with those um, uh, uh, places that they go already for health delivery and, and for health services if the vaccine is distributed through that way. Um, but look, just as the governor could not get a contact tracing program off the ground, you know, the the, the federal government uh, sent about $2 billion in CARES Act money to the state of Missouri. And we still don't have a well-developed contact tracing statewide or a plan to have contact tracing statewide. Governor Parson threw some money at a problem and walked away. I don't believe that he would be engaged on uh, the dissemination of a vaccine because he has already proven and shown in his current response to COVID he is not engaged. I want to move on to healthcare, even though COVID-19 is in the same realm. But you put out a plan talking about pre-existing conditions and passing a state law to mandate insurance companies to cover them. Uh, this was before... Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and now this issue is a lot more resonant because there's a case before the U.S. Supreme Court about whether the Affordable Care Act is going to remain in place. Can you just explain why you think it's important for Missouri to have its own pre-existing condition mandate? So look, people want coverage for pre-existing conditions. It is one of the features of the Affordable Care Act that folks like. Uh, and that's because more than 2.5 million Missourians have what's considered a pre-existing condition. Let's also remember that we're in the midst of a healthcare pandemic and we don't know the long-term health consequences of COVID. So as folks 
are getting COVID and hopefully fully recovering from COVID, um, you know, there's questions now in discussion in the public realm on whether that would be considered a pre-existing condition, right? And so we're in a, a, a shaky ground here when it comes to coverage for pre-existing conditions, particularly if the Affordable Care Act is overturned at the Supreme Court level. And, you know, the, the governor and his appointed attorney general have the state of Missouri in a lawsuit to overturn the Affordable Care Act, including overturning uh, protections for pre-existing conditions. So what that means for folks personally is that if you have diabetes, if you have hypertension, if you have an underlying medical condition, if your insurance company does not cover that, then you will be responsible for the cost of that care. That is not tenable. I mean, you're asking folks to choose from taking, uh, taking care of themselves and their families and putting um, food on the table and all the other costs that they have in their in their. Uh, in their lives. We cannot succeed if we continue down this path where folks do not have access to affordable health care, affordable prescription drugs, and they need to have coverage for their pre-existing conditions. I'm going to play a clip now from then U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill. This is from 2018, so I want to make clear that this is not criticizing you or even addressing your plan, but it was me asking hypothetically, why not have states have their own pre-existing condition mandate? And she brought up some issues with that policy that I want you to address. Here is uh, Senator McCaskill. If you start doing individual consumer protections in 50 different states, that ultimately is going to drive up the cost of health insurance because you're going to have insurance companies having to figure out what to charge differently in every single state in the union and based on the, the, the peculiarities of that individual state. So I do think there's some broad protections that w need to be in the law no matter where you are. So I want to make clear, I, I, I absolutely understand you probably enthusiastically support a federal pre-existing condition mandate. So I'm not saying that you, you don't. But let's just say there is an interim period where you need a state law are, are Senator McCaskill's concerns valid that it, it could create some unintended consequences when it comes to insurance prices? You know, okay, so first of all, I, I do want to say I agree that there needs to be national protection for pre-existing conditions, um, and I do not want the Affordable Care Act overturned. Um, I think it certainly can be improved, but it, it, we should not overturn that because, as I said, over uh, two and a half million Missourians depend on this. You know, the consequences of removing protections for pre-existing conditions uh, is that for you as a family or the individual as a family, not it's not your premiums your insurance going up it's that you no longer have health insurance coverage at all and you are facing medical bills medical treatment prescription drug costs with no protection of insurance at all um, and that is going to have devastating consequences for folks that's why this is so popular um, and so you know of course i i, I want to see people have protections for pre-existing conditions it's important um, and that's why i'm putting forward the policy not just to address pre-existing conditions but also the cost of prescription drugs and the expansion of medicaid ensuring that a quarter million working missourians have health care um, and as i said we're in the middle of a pandemic where COVID potentially is in itself a pre-existing condition. Um, you know, I, I think it's just, it, it, it's cruel to take away people's health care uh, in this way. So the voters did approve expanding Medicaid. Um, 
we have heard from Republicans, including our governor, that this is going to be a tax hike on Missourians and they have concerns with it. But the governor did say because the people wanted it, they've spoken, we're going to make sure that, you know, we follow through and we institute this plan. But if you were elected governor, how would that look different with you in the office rather than the governor? And I mean, and I want to approach this question realistically, right? The legislature is going to be who implements this plan. But but what would you do um, as the governor to help make sure that that gets put in place? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't think that we can trust the governor to implement Medicaid expansion. He opposed it. He opposed. Uh, he continues to oppose Medicaid expansion. Um, he says that he's going to increase your taxes or gut other accounts because voters chose health care in August for working people. And I think that we should take him at his word. We can let history be our guide here. I mean, we, he's working to overturn Clean Missouri, the will of the voters in 2018. Um, he overturned the will of the voters on puppy mills. He said if right to work came to his desk, he would sign it. You know, we don't have to guess what the governor does when he thinks he knows better than the voters because he has proven it over and over again. So he just can't be trusted to do this. You know, within uh, a day of Medicaid expansion, um, passing, folks on the Appropriations Committee were talking about not appropriating funds for this, and Governor Parson went right along with it, you know, but it doesn't have to be that way. Independent studies have shown that Medicaid expansion is budget neutral in the long run saves our state billions of dollars. We can look at the experience of 37 other states that have expanded Medicaid. And even those that had triggers uh, in their law to say if it cost too much or if it, it increased our state budget too much, if it wasn't good for their state, that they could unwind it. None of those triggers have been, uh, have been utilized. No one that is no state that has expanded Medicaid has undone Medicaid expansion. And let's also look at the benefits here because not only does it uh, allow uh, working Missourians, folks that work one job or two jobs, sometimes three, and just don't have insurance through their employer, it allows them to have health insurance. But it also brings $2 billion of investment into our state to invest in our healthcare system, to create tens of thousands of jobs, to keep our rural hospitals open. We can open clinics. We can do this in a way that Missouri can enjoy the successes that all these other states have seen. Um, you know, I, I believe that folks should have access to health insurance. I will implement Medicaid expansion in a way that takes advantage of those benefits, as I said. And it's not only up to the legislature. The Department of Health and Senior Services, uh, MoHealthNet, is part of the governor's administration. And so the next governor will have a lot of say in what healthcare looks like in our state for a decade or more to come. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Auditor Nicole Galloway. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Nicole Galloway. She is Missouri State Auditor and the Democratic nominee for governor. I want to move on to uh, crime. There was recently a special session uh, dealing with violent crime, as Jacqueline knows, because she covered it for us. Only a couple things passed. One was a residency requirement, and, an, and I think that there was another thing that also passed along with it. Uh, Jacqueline, can you say what that was? I'm, I'm kind of blanking here. Yeah, that was the creation of a witness protection fund that actually has no appropriation ability. So um, a fund. What would you have done differently 
if you had called been governor and and wanted to call a special session on violent crime? I would have called a special session on violent crime in 2019. Um, look, in 2019, we had a record number of violent crime and criminal acts uh, happening in the state of Missouri. Let's remember that, you know, kids were getting shot in their backyard and in their homes and walking down the street. And people were begging the governor at the time to take action on, on dealing with violent crime. And he famously said, nope, I got to stay in my lane. And instead he called a special session for used car and boat trade-ins. Now, fast forward another year of heartache, another year of violent crime happening across the state. And he's on the eve of an election. He wants to distract from his failures on COVID. So he calls a special session, uh, but even the his own party, the Republican supermajority, rejected the majority of their proposals, the majority of his proposals, um, because they didn't want to throw 12-year-olds in jail with adults, right? Um, and so the two things that did pass, uh, one, the residency requirement, you know, that it had bipartisan support, you know, that is something to address um, the um, dwindling numbers of law enforcement in the city of St. Louis. That is a long road to turn that around. So that's not a, a magic bullet that will work overnight and something the city needs to continue to monitor. But as Jacqueline said, the one thing that did pass statewide that again had bipartisan support, the governor forgot to appropriate money for it. So it's essentially a useless fund, unfortunately. Um, and so as he was trying to distract from law and order, he again just failed on law and order. I believe that we need to get to the root causes of crime. You know, I was in Kansas City and heard a story from a mom who found out that her 15-year-old son was buying a gun from a 17-year-old boy. And she asked, why? Why are you buying this gun? And the 15-year-old said, what difference does it make? I'm not going to live to be 21 anyway. The total lack of hope, the lack of economic opportunity, the lack of access to opportunity beyond the age of 21 was all that this 15 year old could focus on, right? We have to address that. We have to provide good jobs, good education, um, access to healthcare, mental health care, uh, to deal with some of the trauma that these communities are, are facing. But we also have to address the wide availability of illegal guns. By gun, by the violence that we're talking about here is happening with guns. And if we're not even talking about guns as part of this conversation, we're never going to fix this problem when we will be back in the same place again next year. I do want to add um, the Witness Protection Fund, just putting this out there, that the governor's staff did say that they will be utilizing federal a federal grant to help kickstart that so they can address the appropriations later. But yes, it, it was a witness protection fund that did not have appropriation capability. So um, there is that. However, when the Legislative Black Caucus and Democrats last year were calling for a special legislative session, one of the, the things we heard from our governor is that it's too controversial uh, of an issue. And as we saw, um, this special legislative session, it was supposed to be short and condensed as special sessions are, and it did turn out to be very controversial, some of the, the policies. So is this something that you think could get done in a special legislative session 
um, because as we know, Missourians are very uh, protective of their Second Amendment rights and calling a special legislative session on guns, uh, you know, being here a year for myself, it doesn't seem realistic to get done in a, in a short time frame. You know, Governor Parson is just choosing not to lead on this issue. Um, and it's clear that his party rejected his proposals because they were bad ones. Um, you know, Governor Parson, so Governor Parson, when he was in the legislature in 2016, he voted on a bill to make it easier for criminals to get guns. And the Sheriff's Association and law enforcement were begging the legislature, please don't pass this bill, because if you do, we're going to see increase in violent crime. Experts said, if you pass this bill, we're going to see increases of violent crime. Because as I said, Governor Parson and the legislature at the time uh, made it easier for folks to have access to guns, for criminals to have access to guns. So here we are. Law enforcement was right. The experts were right. And we have to have a conversation about this. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to address issues of violent crime. Um, and look, 90% of Missourians agree with me that we need background checks, that we need to close private sale loopholes. This is not controversial. 90%. I mean, um, that's Republicans. That's Democrats. That's gun owners. Those are folks that don't own guns. You know, you can respect and support the Second Amendment as I do and also want to live in a safe community. Those two things do not have to be mutually exclusive. I do want to ask, you talked about the root causes, and I love Missouri. I, I was born in Illinois. Jacqueline was born in Illinois, too. But I consider myself a fourth-generation Missourian. My kids are fifth-generation Missourians. I love this state. But I cannot deny that this state has a sorry record when it comes to the treatment of black people. Not only was this a slave state, but... This, like a lot of other states throughout the country, there's systemic discrimination against black people that, that left a lot of people even today in poverty and behind the eight ball when it comes to education and, and, and fairness. What would you do as governor to dismantle systemic racism that permeates within our state? I have put forward an opportunity agenda for black Missourians to get at the heart of, of many of the things you just described, Jason. And look, after the killing of George Floyd, what I heard from so many folks is that they're tired of talk, they want action, and they want a plan. And there's rightful frustration when folks see Kentucky and Iowa passing reforms, but we're still stuck here in Missouri. Um, and so I have laid out this agenda to deal and address with systemic racism and inequality that exists in our institutions. I also think um, folks need to hear a recognition that racism is real, that inequality does exist. And if you are not willing to say that and recognize that, then how can you even begin to address it? Um, and so, you know, I am proud of the agenda that I worked on with so many other folks that have been in this work for a long time. And I approach this very humbly. Um, we talk about healthcare, about criminal justice reform and some policing reforms, um, uh, reforms to our education system and investing in entrepreneurs, truly, as I said, providing not just economic opportunity, but economic empowerment, empowering people to create their own economic futures. That is so incredibly important as we lift people um, and move Missouri forward. I also think that we should uh, address issues of discrimination and discrimination in voting 
head on. Um, you know, we need better access to the ballot. So folks that don't trust the system right now can participate and have a say. If you are elected governor, there would be a vacancy in the auditor's office. Would you commit right now that the person that you appoint would be a person of color? Oh, I, I mean, I, that's so that's down the road. I mean, I think we need to know what happens in November 1st. Um, yeah or November, uh, November 3rd, 1st. Um, but, you know, I, I would look for somebody that is, that is qualified and dedicated to accountability, just as I am. We only have a couple minutes left. And as much as I would like you to uh, respond to everything the Parson campaign has done, I don't think we're going to have time for that. And that would take a long uh, time. But they've thrown a lot of things at you. Like they've talked about how uh, I guess your extended family has been involved in Missouri politics, and that kind of chafes against the idea that you're an outsider. Senator Holly has gotten involved and com- and complained very loudly that you were unfair in audit- auditing him. And Parsons' campaign has also brought up the a Kansas City Star article that that talks about recovering versus like showcasing the amount of money that you have found as auditor. What do you make of some of these attacks? And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to some of them because they're all over the airways right now. Yes. I mean, I think the Parson campaign and his apparatus recognize that they are slipping in the polls and they are getting desperate because they are um, misleading and misinforming and straight out lying in, in many instances. Um, and so Look, I am proud of my record as state auditor. I have not identified just $350 million in government waste. It's actually $370 million in government waste, abuse, and mismanagement. And because of those audits, over 63 criminal counts have been brought against corrupt public officials in this state, uh, Democrats and Republicans. When folks don't like an audit, they complain about it and say that it's political. When they like an audit, those same folks uh, will say that it's fair and impartial and that I've done a good job. That is a story as old as time. Um, You know, uh, when it comes to my family, um, you know, even my husband's company came out and had to say that the ads that uh, the the uh, Parson campaign was running were false. Uh, And so, you know, they're not only just dragging you know, they're dragging uh, a great company through the mud for really no purpose. Um, And so, you know, I will stay focused on the issues that people care about. I mean, people want to know what's the plan, what's your plan to contain COVID so we can get back to normal? What's your plan for healthcare? All these issues that we talked about uh, today, you know, those are the things that that people care about at the end of the day, because they want to know as governor, how can you make my life better? I have a plan. I am focused on those families. I am focused on those Missourians. It is clear Governor Parson doesn't have a plan. He is in over his head and he has failed the test of leadership. It is time for a change. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I just want to let our listeners know we have reached out to Governor Parson's campaign and we are looking to have him on the show with Jacqueline and I in the coming days. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter? Driscoll and PR. And Auditor Galloway, how could people either follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web, including your campaign website? It probably would be easiest to go to NicoleGalloway.com because it has LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter and, uh, and the, whole, the whole gamut on there. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. <laughs> <laughs>